HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio. Because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's, we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio. And we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues, the show where you call in with all of your cooking-related questions, technical or non. I'm Dave Arnold. You're a host of Cooking Issues uh, here with uh, Nastasha the Lopez. No, Nastasha Lopez, the Hammer Lopez. That's it. My brain's a little frazzled because I'm actually here on time today, which doesn't usually happen. Not so at all. I'm not used to having any time before we go on air, so it's you know a little, <laughs> little bit different from normal. But calling all of your questions live to the studio at seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Here on a sleety. Brooklyn Tuesday, although it's not as bad as they. If everyone's not supposed be. to get really bad, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I don't that. believe that. Yeah, I don't either. believe it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a load of load of malarkey, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, did I already give the number? Yes, I did. I did give the number. Okay, so we have a question uh, from Paul. Uh, Paul writes in, "Hi, Dave. My one-year-old kids love eating with uh, their hands. Who doesn't? Like, you know, my nine-year-old. I have to break him of eating with his hands. I'm like, this one's a hand. This one's a fork. Isn't he ten now? No. Oh, really? No, he's nine. Oh. Yeah, my oldest one. I have nine and a six. Anyway, uh, my one-year-old kids love eating uh, with their hands, and uh, jello, jelly, or jello to us Americans, uh, is a particular favorite. I don't want to give them too much sugar, so I wanted to turn fruit juice into jelly using gelatin. Uh, we get locally produced orange juice delivered weekly, so that seemed like a good start. I used 1.7% fish gelatin. This is the key here. Fish gelatin, um, which is, should be more than enough to set, by the way. And then uh, letting the granules bloom in one-third of the juice, heating the other two-thirds to boiling, mixing the two parts and stirring 
until dissolved. It's only been in the fridge three hours now, but I'm not convinced it's going to solidify. Do you have any tips? I'd prefer to stick with fish gelatin if possible. Okay, a couple of things. One, I don't think you need to boil uh, all of it. I think you could probably... Um, I think you could probably, you know, do it in a, in a, in a smaller amount because I think you're going to be altering the flavor of the juice by boiling um, boiling so much of it. Um, I think the main issue you're having here is with the fish gelatin. Fish gelatin, I think we spoke about gelatin a bit last week, right, or the week before. Right. Yeah. Uh, fish gelatin uh, usually uh, isn't as strong as uh, regular gelatin. It's a lot lighter of a jelly, uh, you know, on a, on a per weight basis. Also, fish gelatin tends to set at a uh, much lower temperature than regular gelatin. So uh, it is going to take uh, quite a bit longer um, <clears throat> to cool off and set in your fridge. So it might be that you just need to uh, wait longer because your percentages should be enough. It's never probably going to get as hard as a, as a regular gelatin. The other problem with fish gelatin is, I don't know what brand you're using, but unlike um, beef gelatin or uh, pig derived gelatin, uh, fish gelatin is extremely variable in terms of its qualities. So, for instance, like a uh, cold water fish gelatin, it sets at a ridiculously low temperature. It's like, you know, it's not really... I mean, I don't know. I don't have that much experience with it, but from what I read, fish, cold water fish gelatin is, is tough to work with. So you're probably using a warmer water fish gelatin. Um, fish gelatin is also more sensitive to acid than um, some of the other gelatins we use, but it shouldn't be an issue with orange juice because orange juice isn't that uh, acidic. So I would just say uh, wait longer, or perhaps you might think of moving to a different product other than gelatin. So you could use a, a gel. If, if I don't know why you want to use fish gelatin, whether it's because you're worried about uh, whether it's because you don't eat red meat or whether it's because you're worried about maybe BSE in a in a in a in a beef gelatin BSE is bun, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy for all of you people. Although they they've done research where they they've taken and I used to not eat gelatin actually for a while because I was a little paranoid but way back in the day about mad cow. That's what bovine spongiform encephalopathy is, uh, and so, or Jakob's Kreutzfeld uh, new variant whatever BSE. So the um, so uh, what 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 I would do is. Um, what, I mean, what they did, they did a study where they, they took a cow, they injected its brain with uh, mad cow, right? And then they turned it into gelatin, and then they were testing to see whether they could get any prions, because it's a prion-based disease, out of the gelatin, and uh, they couldn't. Um, trust that or don't trust that, uh, as the case may be, because it was paid for by the gelatin people. But um, the So anyway, so I don't know why you want to use fish gelatin specifically. Um, if it's because uh, of the red meat issue, you might want to switch away from fish gelatin and go to an entirely uh, vegetable-based product, seaweed-based, in which case I would use uh, a mixture of kappa carrageenan uh, and locust bean gum, which is a commercially available uh, gelatin replacer. It has the advantage of setting much faster. It has a texture fairly similar to gelatin, although that doesn't melt in your mouth the same way gelatin does because, let's face it, nothing does. Uh, but if you're just making jellies, it should work for you. Um, uh, you can get that from uh, CP Kelco, uh, but I, you know, I don't know. that There's a couple names in the uh, supermarket that you can get that work. I think maybe some of the kosher gelatins are actually carrageenan-based. So you might want to uh, move to that uh, if you want to. Uh, also, I was researching this, and I found out something interesting I did not know. And that is uh, people have made a uh, microbial-based gelatin now. So there's now certain strains of yeast and bacteria that can produce gelatin. Now, they're not commercially available yet, but this could open the door to a completely vegetarian, like actual straight-up gelatin being produced down the road. So uh, we'll all be looking forward to to that. Right, Nastasha? Right, Dave. Okay. Uh, So we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a question about the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Uh, my perfect chocolate chip cookie is kind of on the thicker side, be a little bit chewy. I know some people like it thin and crispy, but, you know, I, I go for the thick and chewy. Right. 
And uh, I was wondering if hydrocolloids could help me perfect the chocolate chip cookie that I'm looking for. All right. Well, this is an excellent question. And first of all, I like the way you're phrasing the question in that you say, you say my perfect chocolate chip cookie. So one of my problems with a lot of recipes that people give is they'll say the perfect chocolate chip mm-hmm. cookie, and there is no such thing as the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Um, so you want it a little bit thicker. What problem are you having now? Like what, what, how, how is it that you're doing it now? How are they coming out? And then how do you hope hydrocolloids will help you? Um, I also like a, kind of a really buttery taste, so I think maybe uh, I'm using a lot of butter, and they come out thick, but they're not very chewy. They they have a rich buttery taste, but they're very soft. And uh, I've never cooked with hydrocolloids, and you know, so I don't really have any experience with them. But I hear you talk about them a lot. I was just wondering if maybe I should try that. Okay. Well, here's here's some uh, some pointers with it. Um, the butter, I'm surprised that they still stay thick with a lot of butter unless you reduce the sugar content on them because the butter should help the spread more. They should spread more with a higher butter content. Uh, but I could be wrong because it's been a while since I've read it. There's a book out there that you can get online uh, called uh, – uh, crackers and cookies, uh, tech, cracker and cookie technology, but it's been about eight years since I've read it, so I'm a little behind in my in my reading. But let's let's go ahead with it. Now, there's um there's a group of people who uh, their feeling is it's possible to make the perfect X, Y, or Z, and chocolate chip cookie is usually one of them without using anything other than the traditional ingredients. Uh, and those people are against using things like hydrocolloids in a chocolate chip cookie just because they say it's not necessary. These are the same people who say don't use anything fancy in your tempura batters because the top-end Japanese chefs don't use them. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. I'm just mentioning that off the, you know, off the top. Um, sure. But it sounds like what you want is something that's going to reduce spread during, um, reduce spread during baking. Am I right? Keep it thicker? Yeah. So, right. Yeah, keep it thicker, not necessarily like a cakey texture. I've, I've had some turn out where they're really thick, but they're kind of cakey, and I, that wasn't really what I was going for either. Right. Uh, well, I would I would try. Um, I mean, so for instance, off the top of my head, any sort of the any sort of the uh, products that add viscosity to the to the stuff would increase um, would increase you know decrease the spread. The problem is is that um, there's not much of a water phase in uh, chocolate chip cookies, right? And so to right. u- to use a hydrocolloid. Uh, Sorry. To use a hydrocolloid accurately, you're going to need to uh, have something that you can put into the water phase. So if you look at if you look at um, basically scanning electron uh, microscopy pictures of uh, starch granules in uh, cookie systems after they've been cooked, you'll see that a lot of the starch granules are still pretty much un, uh, unmessed with, and that's because there's not enough water present in the system, even at the high oven temperatures, to really make them fully swell and break. So it, you, you're basically going to need to find something that can cause a thickening uh, action in you know, in an extremely low water situation, because basically, what do you have in there that's liquid? Probably just the egg, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, w- one thing you could do. I mean, the, 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 this is the problem with hydrocolloids and cookies. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done, but like you could, for instance, clarify the butter, add the 20% water back as butter with a hydrocolloid in it. In which case, I would use something like xanthan gum, or perhaps something like methyl cellulose, right? Uh, or you know, it's going to be hard to hydrate a hydrocolloid into the egg. Although you could, right. in which case I would use something like xanthan, uh, which you know has a, what's called a yield point. So it basically, but it's not going to really affect the cookie when it's done, because um, you know you just won't taste it when you're chewing on the on the on the cookie. But it should you know decrease the spread a little bit. Um, but you, you know the <clears throat> spread in cookies is something that 
has been studied quite, quite a lot. Um, and so you can usually decrease the spread by adjusting the butter-sugar uh, ratio, right, because both of okay. those things, as they heat, are going to tend to increase spread. So increase sugar recipes, increase the spread, and uh, increase butter, I think, should probably increase the spread. Increase. Whereas increased flour decreases the spread but increases cakiness, right, especially, right. especially when combined with uh, leaveners. So um, could, is there a leavener in your recipe? Right, there is, right? Yeah, there is. Right. So if you so aside from just using hydrocolloids, if you wanted to decrease cakiness, when you when they do an increased flour, they probably also increase the leavener. You could go the other way and decrease the leavener a little bit, and that might help. I don't know. Um, you know, also adjusting oven temperature can adjust the spread as it goes, and the temperature of the batter as it goes in can adjust the spread somewhat. So you might want to go in with a very very cold a cold batter, like drop them real cold, throw them in the oven, okay. you know, and then they set it before they spread. But it, it should be possible. I don't think you're going to get that much of a result out of, uh, out of hydrocolloids unless they are, uh, unless they are you know, kind of pre-functionalized. But I could be totally wrong about this because, you know, I've never tried it. But things like xanthan, things um, like methos- oh, methocellulose, I mentioned that one, right? Because methocellulose yeah. has the, the property that it gels when it gets hot. So if you can get the methocellulose to get into the egg white or the egg somehow, when it heats up, it, the methocell will set and actually form a gel and prevent spread. But then when the cookie cools off again, the cookie, uh, the methocell will go back to its normal non-gelling form. So that, you know, that, oh, could, right. that could be interesting. Um, yeah. And, and it might actually be interesting. You can add that. You could probably add a little bit of extra water phase uh, that the cookie doesn't call for because it's not going to increase the spread a little bit. It might make it might make it chewier. I'm not I'm not sure. I have not tested it. Uh, but yeah, that, that was my next question. Could I mix the uh, hydrocolloid with a little bit of water pre incorporating it into the batter and then? Uh, see what that does. You can, but cookies are such low. I mean, except, except for cake style cookies, like for instance, like a, a traditional New York black and white cookie or things like that that have like a lot of water. Because a, a black and white cookie is essentially a cake that's made uh, flat, right? And so we all know what those cakey cookies are like. But in general, like a traditional cookie, like we're talking about, very low water formulation. You know what I mean? Basically, just yeah. the w- water from the eggs. And the roughly 20% by weight water that the butter is that you put into it, you know. Um, now again, it, it would be possible to, to do it. It would take a lot of take a lot of dorking uh, with, but um, it, it's a problem I actually haven't thought about. But it is very interesting, and I'd appreciate it if if you ran some tests or uh, that you uh, kind of got back to us with what the results were. Great, I'll do that. Thank you very much for your help. All right, no problem. Good luck. All right. What did you say, Nastasha? We have a minute. We have uh, Nastasha. This is why they call the hammer. She's supposed to be the hammer on other people, but she ends up just basically. You like people? What? What do you mean? No, Nastasha likes just to be the hammer on me instead of on instead of on like callers. Well, we're not supposed to be a hammer on the caller. She's look. She's supposed to be like Nastasha's supposed to be like my personal hammer. Like someone comes gives me I the beatdown. I told beat him down. to slow down at in the beginning, I, and he flipped me off. I, that's, this is this <laughs> yes. is an exaggeration. Yes, this is not an, an exaggeration. This is an exaggeration. <laughs> I would like to say this is an exaggeration. <laughs> no. Right. So next week, uh, actually, will I be here on Tuesday? I, am I gonna, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, right after the radio show next week, I'm flying out to Florida, and it's the first time I'm extremely excited. I'm going to the North American Food Equipment Manufacturer Show in Orlando. I was going to have my wife and kids fly down so that we could do the whole Disney World thing, but my wife had a project come up so she can't do it, which is unfortunate because my kids have never been to Disney World. Uh, anyway, uh, that's aside the point. But uh, not next week, but the week after, I will regale you all with 
uh, stories of the latest, greatest developments in North American food equipment manufacturing, <laughs> which, uh, listen, Nastasha's laughing because to her this sounds boring, but there's nothing I enjoy more than looking at new equipment. Seriously, like walking around, and I usually go to the uh, National Restaurant Association show with the NRA. Everyone's like, that NRA? I'm like, no, the other NRA in Chicago every year, and um, they have some equipment there, but this is apparently like the great the great grandma of all equipment shows in the U.S. So I'm going to go down and uh, I'm going to report back on what I think the future of uh, restaurant food equipment is going to be as according to the restaurant. Uh, if I get to actually walk the show at all because yeah. Nils and I are going down there to uh, shill out basically for the unified brands uh, who make a, a piece of equipment that we use at the school called um, the, Randall, the Randall FX. It's a pretty cool uh, fridge. Anyway, so we're going down there, and so Nils and I have to do a dog and pony uh, like every hour on the hour for a couple of days uh, uh, talking about the merits of accurate refrigeration. So uh, anyway, we're excited uh, next week to come out, and we'll give you the report uh, when I get back. Right now we're going to go to our first commercial break. Call in all your questions to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128, cooking issues. How you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. It doesn't have to be cooking, actually. It can be alcohol-related. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it can be alcohol-related. Uh, what? Like making alcohol stuff. Well, yeah. Making, alcohol. drinking, like tips on mm-hmm. drinking or making mm-hmm. making alcohol, making drinks with alcohol. Uh, okay, we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi, Dave. Quick question. Sure. Um, I noticed when you pour champagne into an empty glass that the uh, effervescence is pretty quick and it, you know, it bubbles over if you don't pour carefully. But if you got another liquid in there, like, say, like orange juice for a mimosa or something, you can pour it a lot faster. Is that, like, a lack of nucleation sites or is the carbonation getting diluted or... I think, probably, I think probably both. I mean, certain things that you pour into cause an instant foaming because they have uh, foam-forming abilities. So, for instance, like you'll notice if you squeeze a lime into, uh, into a drink and then pour it with seltzer, you get that big scum of bubbles on the top of it, right? Yeah. But you're not going to necessarily get the, the little bubbles. Well, actually, you will because they're going to nucleate off, off, the, off the thing. So the, the first pr- problem you're going to ha- – not problem, but the first issue you're going to deal with is like what is the actual uh, – what are the properties of the liquid you're pouring into and are they going to increase – foaming or not now there's a difference between like foaming which is the head that's going to form on the top and then um actual bubbles that are going to form in the liquid so i think you're probably right that um that if you dilute something you're going to have less bubbles coming out because the amount
amount of bubbles coming out are related to the actual percentage dissolved CO2 that are in the, in the product. And because you've diluted it down, um, you're going to have less total CO2 per, you know, per gram. And so assuming that your orange juice is cold and everything, um, all of a sudden the amount of CO2 coming out is going to be a lot lower than if you poured in straight champagne. Right. Ah. So, uh, I mean, there's that effect, and there's also something you mentioned when you pour it into a, a you know, a, a new glass. A new glasses tend to. I mean, this is not what you're talking about, but it's what I th- where I thought you were going to go. So I'll talk about it anyway. Is uh, you know, there's uh, nucleation sites on glasses in the form of dust specks and uh, little imperfections in it. So you actually, if you hyper clean, if you pour like, uh, you know, a, a, I forget what they're called, like sodium dichromate cleaning solution, the stuff we used to use in Orgo, you know, to totally. To, Eat anything that's on the inside of the glass and dump it out. You'll get no. You'll get no bubbles. And there's a. There's actually a book you might be interested in uh, about the. It's the science of champagne. It deals a lot with uh, bubbles, and it's uh, written by a gentleman uh, who's a champagne scientist. I think his last name is uh, Belloc. His first name might be Hilaire or something like that. Belloc. It's the science of champagne. It's not that expensive. It's a thin book, and it's written, you know, it's equation-free, so you don't have to, like, beat your head against the wall to get through it. And it's a really interesting study of uh, champagne and the physics of champagne and the physics of bubbles. It's definitely a recommended read. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's still in print, and you can get it, get it through Amazon. I'll caution you, though. <clears throat> Uh, everyone always lies about the amount of bubbles that are present in champagne. Like the champagne numbers are always extremely high, and I've never yeah. no, I've never noticed that they, there actually is that much carbonation in a bottle of champagne as the, what they quote on, in their literature, which is interesting to me. Whereas like American sparklers are often overcarbonated, which is why they I think you tend to lose some of the um, you tend to lose some of like the fruit notes, and they tend to seem less complex. And I think it's because they're overcarbonated, which is why, by the way, this ties into your question. Believe it or not, that um, I think that American sparklers are really good choices sometimes for uh, like a mimosa, things like a mimosa because they'll have more residual CO2 when you water down the uh, when you water down your orange juice. Okay. What do you think? Does this make any sense? Yes. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. All right. Call, uh, call in again if you have any more questions, especially on champagne because we love it. Right, Nastasha? Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you for calling. Um, okay. So, interesting. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, right? Martha. Tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow we drop off the Martha Fuge. So uh, I think as we talked about uh, earlier, right? We talked about this before, right? Mar- I was on, well, on, on the Martha Stewart yeah. show. Yeah, I'll run through it again. On the Martha Stewart show, Martha Stewart's like, I want a centrifuge, but I only want to pay $300. It's not how she talks. Anyway, so we found her a centrifuge for $300. And uh, the, uh, what was the problem with this one again? It had, uh, this one was, the oh, brushes, thing. the brushes. Yeah, I needed to replace the brushes on the motor. So I replaced the brushes on the motor. Thing works fine. Uh, I had to, um, so yeah, it works, works great. In fact, it works better than mine. Works better than mine because mine, the refrigeration unit was broken. And I was secretly, I said to Nastasha, I was like, you know, Nastasha, I should give her the one where the refrigerator is broken. But she would have been on you. Well, no, no, no. You were like, come on, it's Martha. Give her the good yes. one. What the heck's wrong with you? Right? Pretty much. But, you know, well, that's not how I talk either. But, well, yeah, you're here to defend your speech. But, you know, the, so anyway, so I'm sure we've all had this, right? Where you get two things, right? And you already have yours and you buy one for somebody else and you're like oh my god it's better than mine and there's that <laughs> moment where you want to switch it out it's just not happened to yeah. you yeah yeah of course anyway so we're giving her the good one but it it, it, it put a, a fire under my butt to go fix uh fix mine um so anyway so i did fix mine but it was a pain in the butt because to, to change out the board the electronics board was like a like a thousand dollars to change it so i just bought uh you can go you know it used to be to buy a temperature controller online like a pid temperature controller that worked it would cost uh you know 
over $100, well over $100. Now, they're so cheap. There's so many people doing uh, DIY, that's do-it-yourself, uh, temperature control stuff that you can buy a temperature controller out there delivered like in two days for like 30 bucks, 30 40 bucks. So I bought one, and uh, I just put my own temperature control on my refrigeration unit, and now my refrigeration unit works fine. Thank you very much. So it turns out I've now fixed pretty much every part <laughs> Of uh, centrifuge, so you could, yeah. This could be your new job, or if anyone has a centrifuge that needs to be fixed. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, here's what I, here's what I was thinking. Oh, first of all, you know, Wiley now finally got a centrifuge. Wiley has a three liter centrifuge. Of course, his is new, fancy, fancy uh, three liter centrifuge. And one of our interns, uh, former intern, I guess, at least still working with us, Piper Christensen, who just got hired at, at WD. Congratulations, Piper. <laughs> Uh, so uh, he's running their centrifuge night and day, and they're, they're coming up with some new interesting applications. But, you know, I've been a centrifuge evangelist for a long time now, uh, several years probably, and uh, I really think people should buy more centrifuges. I really, really do. Um, you know, I, I did a bunch of research on it right now. I'm not recommending that a restaurant go out and, and uh, you know, buy a $100 centrifuge and have this giant thing sitting in their, in their restaurant. And, like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And who knows what the lifetime of the centrifuge buckets are because, I don't know if you guys know. Centrifuge, by the way, for people who think, what the hell is this guy talking about? Centrifuge, what, 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 huh? <laughs> if you're thinking that, what it is is basically a machine that has a rotor that spins very quickly and it creates centripetal force. And that, um, and that actually separates products based on their density. So we use it typically to separate oil from nuts, for instance, or to uh, clarify juices, um, and we can do it very fast with very high yields. Um, we can also like do nut milks, things like that, get very very high yields. Um, very, I don't you know, understand how blood came into play or comes into play in a centrifuge. Well, they typically what they'll do is they'll fill the centrifuge tubes with blood. They'll spin it. They'll get the serum on the top and the red blood cells at the bottom. Oh, okay. And they're running tests and stuff like that. Yeah. So when you buy a used centrifuge, you have to assume that it's had really evil, evil, evil stuff in it. And so you have to completely, uh, as I said, and Ken Kirschenbaum, our friend at at, at, uh, at NYU, likes to quote me as bleach the rabies out of it. So you ble- <laughs> you bleach the hell out of it, and then you and then you uh, pressure cook the uh, buckets to um, to to do it. Anyway, so this this type of centrifuge, three liter centrifuge, um, you know. Although there are perils to buying it used, uh, is extremely good. Uh, and so what you can do is um, what, you, what you do is you, know, you buy it and fix it. But I think restaurants could afford to buy a new one. I looked at it online, and you can get a very good quality centrifuge for about seven seven thousand five hundred dollars that does everything that ours does minus the refrigeration. Okay, and. Um, and so, and, and that thing will will pay for itself. If you make juices or you're doing things like that, the increase in yield off these expensive ingredients is going to pay for itself. I don't know why more people aren't uh, getting it because it's not like it's it's not some kind of a crazy presentation tool. Like no one has to know you're doing it. It's just all of a sudden you have these amazing clear juices, like these amazing uh, you know nut nut oils, everything. It's just such a great tool. Um, so what I was thinking is like, what if we started a uh, well, not started a business, but what if we said, hey, listen, uh, you buy this centrifuge we'll tell you which one to buy and then we'll come in and train you how to use it we'll show up you know you need like you need like some enzymes they don't cost that much the enzymes uh you need like you know a a bag of uh, you know a bag of enzymes um and pretty much you're ready to rock and roll right yeah that and maybe some of this uh kytosan well we're doing one of the things and a scale scale is like 20 bucks so you know or you know not not bad uh in fact uh our new intern brooke we were getting a scale from martha and it was all messed up she cleaned that thing like it was brand freaking new. I was like, crap, now I don't want to give that to Martha either. <laughs> I've never seen someone clean a scale that way. You would not believe – people, you would not believe this. I would uh, – yeah, that, that, scale was, that scale was like hospital quality when she was done with it. Did you say we had that? Yeah, we have a caller. Oh, we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi, Dave. Hi, how you doing? 
Doing good. This is Michael Natkin. How you doing? Doing great. Sent you a few email questions, and uh, now I got a chance to catch you live. All right. Here we go. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you got for me? So I got a question about coconut milk. Delicious so, coconut milk, you mean? I love coconut milk. Yeah. So I've made a lot of really bad Thai curries over the years, <laughs> and I finally made a good one, and I don't really understand why. I'm hoping you can help me figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I always ignored the instruction to cook the coconut milk until it separates. Right. I never could really figure out why that was important. Uh, and my curries always turned out a little bit gelatinous. It's like I would reduce the milk somewhat, but not cook it all that, all the way down until it's separated. Right. Um, and I would get this sort of gelatinous, unpleasant texture in them. And you know, finally I realized, hey, I'm not following that direction because it, you, know, you know how you follow a recipe, and if you don't know why something's important, you skip it. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then I, for the other day, you know, I, I cooked the curry paste, I cooked the milk down until it separated, and then I added some more fresh coconut milk to bulk it up before I served it, and it came out great. So, so what's going on there? What's that gelatinous texture about, huh. and why does separating it help? That's extremely interesting. So I'm going to have to. Th- so f- for those of you out there, uh, presumably, if you're cooking it till it breaks, you're making your own coconut milk. No. Okay. No, I'm using can. Right. So um, you should. Well, try try making your own. By the way, have you ever you've made your own ever or no? I never have. Oh my god! You have to try making your own coconut milk. It's okay. uh, it's amazing. It's like fresh coconut milk is a revelation. But here's and this is how it, it goes. Talks to what you're what you're what you're talking about. You know, fresh coconut milk, you make it like you would almost any other. You, know, you grate the coconut, and then you, you right. know, blend it high speed with hot water, and you squeeze it out. Anyway, uh, and it's delicious. You love it. But fresh coconut milk, and this is why I'm asking, breaks extraordinarily quickly when you're cooking it. Mm. Whereas canned coconut milk, and I don't know why, uh, takes a lot longer to break. You know what I mean? Right. You can boil yep. coconut milk for a good long time th- before, right. before she breaks on you. And Nastasha's like, why is it always a she? <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, so you can you can boil it for a long time. So I don't. First of all, I don't know what it is about the canning process on coconut milk that makes it less sensitive to breaking than um, than when you make your own coconut milk. I also have never read the ingredient label on coconut milk to see whether they have some sort of process additive to it when they when they do it. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but the, but as to exactly what's going on in the milk when it breaks, as opposed to, for instance, you know, I can tell you pretty much what's going on in milk milk when it breaks. You know what I mean? I can tell you pretty much, I mean, you know, somewhat what's going on in uh, soy milk when it breaks, when it, when you curdle it rather. But uh, I don't really know what's going on in coconut milk. But it's a very interesting question. And uh, shoot, we don't have any of our Thai interns around. Right? We could call up. Uh, it's a good question for Weepop to, yeah. to hunt down David uh, Thompson and see what he says about it. But uh, it's an interesting question. Hmm. But it, 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 I wish I had an answer for you off the top of my head. I don't, but I am. Uh, I will research it further. You should, oh. do a, you should do a secondary test. If you have the time, first of all, we all know, except for Nastasha, everyone in the world thinks that Thai food is delicious, right? So, I mean, like, I think this warrants a side-by-side. I think this definitely warrants a side-by-side test to see uh, do it do it the same way side by side in a pot and the only thing checking is the um, is the is this breaking thing now could it also be that it was much more reduced and then when you had to add more to bulk it back you were just adding more coconut solids and flavor or not well you know definitely I mean I, either way I end up with I'm putting in three cans of coconut milk more or less right so you know one way I'm sort of dumping all those three cans in at once and letting it reduce a little bit um, the other way, I'm cooking one can down until it breaks, and then adding the last two right at the end. And the tech, you know, so the total volume is pretty close to the same. Uh, but the one, you know, has a beautiful texture with a little bit of oil floating on top, and the other has this sort of horrible, almost like it was gelled with a little bit of agar kind of 
you know, sliminess. Right. That's very interesting. I'll definitely do yeah. more research. I was going to see McGee in a couple of weeks, and I could talk to him about it because I know he's interested in these kinds of things. But I don't think because he had to cancel the event I was going to do with him. But uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm definitely going to do more do, do more research. If you don't hear anything uh, from me on it in a, in a month within a month or so on the radio, it means that it slipped my mind, and then you should repester us via email. Okay. Uh, and but in the meantime, I encourage you to run some more tests and. Uh, because by the way, things do slip my mind all the, all the time. But because uh-huh. but I am interested. So I, uh, but we should we should we should definitely work on it. So run some tests if you can and get back to us if you get some results and if not we'll get back to you. All right. Okay, sounds good. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, take care. All right. Let's go to a break. Okay, we're going to our second commercial break, says Nastasha the Hammer. Uh, call in all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, cooking issues. You feel good? Feel so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I'll call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, yeah. Sure getting down. Look at him. We're going to have a bump. Coming back at you with cooking issues. Still time to call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. By the way, we're sitting in front of a ZZ Top uh, album, an old ZZ Top album, uh, TV Dinners, which has like the old school like Swanson style TV dinner on it. So look up the picture to ZZ Top's. Oh, isn't that Jack? Jack's heading in front of me. Gorgeous, gorgeous picture of some really poor quality fried chicken, corn, some awful form of brown biscuit, and some horrific mashed potato that's clearly been piped out of a tube. Uh, wow. Anyway, so grooving on it. Love the ZZ Top. Anyway, so uh, we're giving a, a, a shout out to uh, Andy Melka who uh, called in uh, a little while ago with a venison question or do, I don't it was remember an email. email. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in fact cooked uh, the venison with, he, he built his own immersion circulator which we love DIY people and love DIY projects although we also love that you go to uh, Philip Press and buy his <laughs> circulators. But um, so Andy, Andy Melka, you can look him up on Facebook. He posted some pictures uh, and looked at him and Andy, they, they look pretty dang good. His venison looks pretty good. Although you didn't say in the, in the Facebook thing how it tasted you just have a picture of it so i'm hoping it tasted as good as it looked all right so i want to talk a little bit about uh our fundraiser that we're going to do on march the 27th 27th three days before my 40th birthday by the oh way. my god yeah three days before my 40th birthday uh we're doing a fundraiser for the <laughs> museum of food and drink which is a, a you know a, a museum idea I, I started you know well over five years ago but then kind of put on the back burner when i took the job at the french culinary because i haven't had time but the idea is, is that we want to create a museum you know of not right away i mean we're not you know we're not you know we're grandiose, but not in that way. Uh, started a museum on the order of, uh, you know, like the Natural History Museum, food, right? But started small. Uh, and, you know, Patrick here at Heritage, uh, Heritage Foods, Heritage Radio, uh, we heard about this, and we we're going to restart it. We're having a f- our first fundraiser, and it's a fundraiser to get, you know, some money to hire someone to start the administrative process and to actually get the ball rolling, to get the actual thing rolling. 
Uh, and the fundraiser is looking pretty awesome. So it's on March 27th at Del Posto. It's, it's a Sunday. Sunday in the afternoon. It's, you know, what's, what, how much is it going to cost? Two fifty. That's not the point. The point. The point is right. Two hundred people. Two hundred fifty dollars. Museum of food. Anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but check out the check out the group of people that so far have agreed to participate. Right. So we have Audrey Saunders from Pegu Club is going to be doing drinks, and everyone's going to have a theme. So I don't have a theme for Audrey yet. What food uh, history theme? Something well, some, that relates to the museum. Something that relates to the museum, museum, which so that either it's means personalized. Yeah, technology of food, history of food, culture of food, right? And it's personalized to the person. So I haven't figured out what I want to do for Audrey, but she's in. Thomas Wall from Death and Co is in. Maybe since De- Death and Co, by the way, which is a fantastic bar here in New York. Death and Co is the, the name of an artist who used to draw uh, p- paintings to guide people to speakeasies back during the Prohibition. So maybe they want to do something Prohibition That'd based. Be cool, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. to play on the Death and Co. All right. Then during the cocktail uh, hour, uh, Cesare Casella from uh, Celemaria Rossi, and he used to be the Sultan of Beans. What is he now? Salumi. No, the Emperor of Beans, and now he's a Sultan of Salumi. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so he's going to be bringing some Salumi. I don't know how we're going to theme it up. He's going to bring Salumi no matter what. <laughs> yeah. No matter what. And it's going to be delicious Salumi, but Cesare's going to bring Salumi. How the hell are we going to paste a theme on top of that? Whatever, he's Cesare. He's going to have rosemary everywhere. Rosemary's going to be growing out of his ears, <laughs> sticking out of his hair in the pocket. You know, I, I love Cesare. He's, okay. And so then uh, on the savory side, we've got Mark, because it's at Del Posto. So Mark Ladner's going to be there. I'm giving him Roman, right? So he's going to do Roman. So he's busting out his old, his Apicius, because he's got the Apicius books to do Roman cuisine. But what he doesn't have, this sounds like the guy at the end of Wizard of Oz, but what you don't have <laughs> uh, is, uh, no, is there's a, there's a fish sauce, and I think I've mentioned this on the air before, called Ishiri, that comes out of Japan that's made from from uh, squid guts. They have one made from, uh, I believe, mackerel guts. The one I have is squid guts. Uh, And what's cool about it is that uh, it's a dead ringer for the actual ancient Roman fish sauce, uh, the high-end fish sauce that was uh, around the time that uh, Apicius coming out that was made entirely out of uh, fish guts, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the garum sosharum, this like high-end garum. And uh, I had an opportunity to taste some that was made by Sally Granger, who's an Apicius expert, Roman expert, and is uh, probably finished at this point, but was working on her PhD in Roman fish sauces. So she gave me some of hers to taste that was three years old, uh, two or three years old, and I was like, bang, this stuff tastes like a shiri, which is a very it's a fish sauce, but it doesn't taste anything like a fish sauce. It tastes like fish sauce mis- mixed with canned meat. Which it's really cool stuff. So anyway, I'm going to give Mark some of this stuff because it's the closest thing anyone's ever tasted to ancient Roman uh, fish sauce that you can actually go out and purchase. Uh, yeah, Ishiri. And there's a bunch of Ishiris. There's one in particular that, that tastes really good. It comes from the north of Japan from uh, – where is it from? from? Ishikawa or something like that? I don't know. All right. So then we got Dave Chang. Dave Chang, I'm either gonna let, we're either gonna put him with country ham because he and I share this as a bond, country ham. We both love country ham. So it's either gonna be some sort of country ham theme, which fits into the museum. In fact, the first exhibit the museum did was a, an exhibit on country ham that I put together, uh, you know, six years ago now, uh, where we tasted a bunch of American hams and we ate them um, basically in the style of prosciutto. But don't call American ham prosciutto; it's its own product. Please, please don't call it prosciutto. Uh, anyway, uh, or I was thinking kind of a like a pre pre-red pepper Korean dishes. So going back to what uh, Korean food might have been like, not might have been like, what it was like uh, before the introduction of all of the ingredients that came from North and South America. So we're talking no peppers, which means no spicy peppers of any kind, uh, you know, tomato, any of that stuff, uh, none of that. So I thought that might be interesting. Can you tell him the joke one that you made for him? 
Well, I was saying, you know, for those of you, Dave Chang, who's a good friend of mine, and you know, you know, extremely well-known chef, uh, and uh, famous for having a, 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 you know, a little bit of a temper. You know, Dave's got a little bit of a temper. So, you know, like when he goes ballistic on people in the kitchen, they say they've been Chang banged, etc. You know, so, so well-known for his temper. So I was saying, well, he could he could recreate the dinner that Vlad Tepish, the impaler, gave to uh, this group of people that he then locked into a barn and lit the barn on fire and let them all burn to death. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I was kidding, and Nastasha actually emailed that to him, and he was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. You know, some sort of like Romanian impaler theme uh, dish. Anyway, we got Wiley Dufresne, my brother-in-law from WD-50, is going to come in and do something, but I don't know what we're going to give him yet as, the, as, the, as his theme because I don't want to make him just, you know, oh, we're going to do technology. You're Wiley Dufresne. It's going to be technology, right? We've got to come up with something. Yeah. And, and eggs is easy because it's his famously his, his favorite thing is eggs, but, um, but everyone does that with him. So I, I need to give a little more thought to what uh, – and by the way, this is an invitation to give us themes yeah. uh, for the museum-based. Uh, we have uh, Nils Norin, right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, Nils Norn. Uh, he's going to come in and, uh, I don't know, should we just do Swedish for him? Or? I don't know. No? I don't know. No? No. no. Who, who, else, who else has agreed? Uh, Carlo has agreed. From Roberta's? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So are we, well, what kind of theme should we give him? So it's going to be some sort of farm-to-table thing, right? Hipster. Hip, hip. Wow. <laughs> you like that? You like that? Calling BS on someone in their own place? Like, wow. He's, he can come out of the kitchen right now and beat us over the, the head knife, with a lead yeah. pipe. <laughs> What the hell are you doing? So what are we gonna do? We're gonna do uh, we're gonna, like uh, farm to table maybe? Yeah, yeah. Farm to table? I don't know. People, give us some suggestions for Christ's sakes. Okay. Uh, then uh, did Johnny agree yet? Johnny Azzini? Like Johnny Azzini, I think he's. I, I'm not sure. I think he might have agreed. I don't know. I don't know what theme I'm gonna give him. Christina uh, uh, Tozzi from uh, from Milk Bar. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking cereal. No? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if she wants to. I mean, she's well known for making kind of cereal milk ice creams and things like that. So if she wants to do it, we'll do it. She's doing a dessert. Uh, and then uh, Brooks from Del Posto is also going to do it. And I'm thinking giving him Italian-Jewish because, you know, my family is, comes from Italian uh, ex-Jews who were expelled from uh, – uh, ex-Jews who were sp- expelled from uh, – what am I thinking? Spain during uh-huh. the Inquisition had to go to, uh, to Italy. They then converted and became land butchers. That's the Adonisio family. That's my whole stepfather's family. So, And uh, there's a lot of really interesting kind of uh, Italian desserts of Jewish uh, – of, of Jewish Ancestry, so maybe that, maybe something else. I invite you guys to uh, call in and uh, g- give us your uh, give us your feedback on that on what on what you think would be good. Okay, now a uh, couple things. One, I was was realized recently that I've taken on some projects that I probably should not have taken on. So I'm going to tell you the story about projects that you take that are uh, mistakes for you to do. So, so this person came to us and they say, said, "Hey, listen, listen." <laughs> Listen, we're launching, we're launching this thing, and we need to come up with a drink, and we want a drink that goes, starts out cloudy and then turns clear. So I gave it some thought, right? And I was like, you know, it's very difficult. It's very easy to make a drink that starts out clear and then goes cloudy. That's like the ouzo effect. So you have something in a high alcohol, like an oil that's, that's uh, dissolved in a high alcohol system. You add liquid water to it, and as you add water to it, all of a sudden the oil isn't soluble, and it, it basically goes into a suspension, but it does it in such fine droplets that it turns cloudy, right? And so that's ouzo, pastis, all of these uh, liquors that you uh, add water to, and they turn cloudy. But that's exactly 
exactly the opposite of the message that these guys want to portray, right? Yeah. Like, hey, look, we took – it's an information company. Hey, look, we took something that was clear and we obfuscated it and made it cloudy, <laughs> right? So they don't, want, they don't want that. So that was out. So then I was trying to do all these experiments of taking something cloudy, a suspension, and then altering its solubility and making it go clear again. So we tested a methicel from hot to cold, having it go, but it didn't work. We then used, and I don't want to hear anything about it, we used milk of magnesia, right, which is a suspension, and then we increased the acidity, so it went from cloudy to clear, and we got it to work, but it didn't taste so fantastic, right, and it also, the effect wasn't as dramatic as we wanted. We wanted milk white to water clear, and I could get, like, somewhat turbid to somewhat less turbid. <laughs> like, like, that, like that's, that's, where, that's where we were. So then... Uh, you know, and and uh, and the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't get into this because you know I really don't like presentation tricks anyway. I really like to focus on stuff that makes things taste better. But this person's asking me, and it's kind of an interesting challenge. But it's you know it's just not not my normal line of work. Like I really don't like problems that are just presentation based. So then uh, you know I tell her the problems we're having with the cloudy the cloudy to clear, and she comes back. And uh, she's like, well, also, it could be blue because our logo is blue. And I'm like, of course it's freaking blue, like the, the, the least natural color on earth, blue, right? So I'm like, all right, I'll work on it. And I order some blue corn in, and I'm, I'm thinking so much that I'm going to be able to do this with the blue corn that we ordered, right? I ordered a 50-pound sack of blue corn. I'm so confident that I could do it, right, because I figured that in, in Peru they have purple corn, chicha but they have blue corn I can get that's actually blue, and I'm going to be able to make a blue corn syrup with it, right? So I call her back, stupid, don't ever do this. Yeah. I called her back and I said, okay, I can do it. So now I'm locked. Now I'm locked into doing this. So, I, so I, uh, basically I say that I'm going to put uh, blue corn syrup. I'm going to put basically – I'm going to make a, uh, a, you know, a, a tonic-style drink that goes on top of it. We're going to carbonate. It's going to mix. It's going to be blue. We're going to use liquid nitrogen to chill the glasses. It's going to be fantastic, right? Sounds fantastic, right? No, no. Blue corn comes in. It's freaking purple, right? <laughs> it's freaking purple. There is no real – Blue stuff. Now then, you know, so you go do some research, and I should have known I couldn't actually get it blue because all of the blues that we're dealing with are based on a group of dyes, uh, you know, a group of chemicals called anthocyanins, right? And these things are, uh, they're pH dependent, and that's the problem. And all these drinks are fundamentally acidic, and so all of these anthocyanins go red in acidic, and they go green in ultra basic, and can be made to be blue in the right pH range, but that pH range, that basic pH range, is not delicious, right? Yeah. Is not delicious. So we're using an egg white drink with no acid and, and blue corn juice, and we got it kind of blue, tasted I mean, how bad did that taste and smell? Really bad. And the smell was... Uh, well, first part. of all, it's, ve- it's very precisely a specific smell that I cannot <laughs> describe on air. Uh, it's, okay, vile. But it's in Russian, so you, no one would know. Yeah, right. That's your, that's your mom's theory. Uh, vile, vile, awful vile, vile stuff, right? Uh, so anyway, so then we tried to nixtamalize the, the corn because that's going to add some basicity and make it more blue. And by the way, nixtamalized blue corn is A, delicious for tortillas, and which you know if you've had a blue corn tortilla. And B looks fantastic, but we couldn't make a good drink out of it. All the drinks look terrible. And then we st- you, know, you start going crazy, and you're like, look, here's what I can't do. I can't use blue curacao uh, which, and because I've in- I insult – not insulted, but basically insulted a famous Japanese bartender for using blue curacao because uh, – not because of the blue food coloring, interestingly, but because the quality of the curacao is terrible. 
right? Yeah. And so basically using a, like a, a, a small amount of a very low-quality ingredient to add just a color effect. And I, you know, I said, why don't you just use food coloring? He's like, well, that would be too easy. He's like, well, and then someone else asked, and I think I said this before, like, why are you adding, why are you adding uh, an ingredient that tastes bad? And he's like, well, I'm only adding a little bit of an ingredient that tastes bad. It's not really acceptable, right? So now I'm... I'm, I'm now I'm, karma came back to bite you. Oh, well, he's over <laughs> the thing. So basically, so yeah, so I, yeah, karma came back to, to bite me, and now I'm going to have to use blue food coloring, I think. I don't know. Someone help me here. This is like, this is like the worst nightmare in my world. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a presentation trick. Right, which is an awful idea. Uh, a presentation trick alone, and I've, I'm reduced to using blue food coloring. Uh, there's a fantastic, beautiful blue flower out of Thailand that's unavailable. But you know what happens when you add acid to it? Turns red. You know why? <laughs> because it's freaking anthocyanin that's making it go. You know what I mean? There's just no real way uh, around this problem. I really don't. I don't know what I'm going to do. But it is a lesson. Do not say yes. Unless you know you can deliver. And this has been Cooking Issues. Come back at you next week. Uh, Cooking Issues.